0: Hello, Knowledge Seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we delve into the timeless debate of economic systems with Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. This seminal work, composed at a pivotal moment during the Cold War, presents a compelling case for the intrinsic link between free market economies and political freedom. Friedman expertly navigates the principles of liberty and economic policy asserting that the foundations of democratic society are deeply rooted in capitalist practices. Within the pages of Capitalism and Freedom, published in 1962, readers will explore the provocative argument that government intervention in the market often leads to the erosion of personal freedoms, a message that echoes strongly in contemporary discourse. Friedman's lucidity and insightful economic reasoning make this book a cornerstone text in understanding the complex nature of freedom and economics. Milton Friedman himself was not just an observer, but a formidable influencer in the world of economic thought. His background in mathematics and economics, combined with his tenure at the University of Chicago, shaped him into a leading advocate for free market ideology. His theories would come to inspire policies enacted by the governments of key figures such as Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize in 1976, Friedman is celebrated as an outstanding economist of the 20th century. Capitalism and Freedom is a must-read for economics enthusiasts interested in the evolution of economic thought over the last hundred years, advocates of free-market capitalism, and even the sceptics who seek a deeper understanding of the arguments for a capitalist framework. Join us as we unpack the intricacies of Milton Friedman's influential views on how economic liberty is essential for a truly free society. Capitalism and Freedom The definitive statement of Friedman's immensely influential economic philosophy. Introduction the intricate dance between prosperity and autonomy. Picture a society that promises bountiful harvest to all, a vision of shared prosperity under the watchful guide of a benevolent authority. The seeds of this dream were once sown deep in the soils of Soviet socialism, sparking a mighty tug of war with the West's emblem of economic success, capitalism. The collapse of the Iron Curtain seemed to signal capitalism's grand triumph. However, the echoes of alternate economic narratives persist, challenging the free market victory lap. The allure of state intervention in markets, once considered passe, is resurfacing as political figures wave the banner of democratic socialism, while provocative literature flirts with the romance of planned economies. The pendulum, it appears, Is swinging back toward an embrace of governmental influence in the marketplace. Enter Milton Friedman, a formidable voice championing economic liberty as the bedrock of political freedom. In his world, the well meaning promises of market corrections are precarious stepping stones, leading, quite unintentionally, to monopolistic tyrannies, eroded livelihoods, and the very nemesis of equality. Friedman's hypothesis beckons us to question. Is economic freedom truly synonymous with political liberty? As our journey unfolds, we'll probe into the effects of government spending on economic vitality, consider the transformative potential of a negative income tax to uplift social welfare, and weigh the societal dividends of primary education against the less communal returns of university-level learning. Part 1. Freedom's Fabric the weave of economic and political liberties. We often draw a line in the sand between economic pursuits and political ideals, treating them as disparate disciplines. Schools teach them as isolated subjects, one highlighting our quest for prosperity and the other extolling our yearning for freedom. But to believe we can mix and match economic systems with political frameworks is a misconception. The grand vision of combining the socialist economy of a state like the Soviet Union with the individual freedoms of a nation like the United States to produce a democratic socialist society is an illusion. Here's the crux of the matter economic freedom and political freedom are not independent entities, they are entwined and cannot be dissected without harming each other. Imagine a time after World War II when a British traveler, filled with wanderlust, Dreams of the golden shores of America. But alas, his dreams are shackled, not by chains, but by currency regulations. The government's grip on capital makes his sterling too feeble against the mighty dollar. Contrarily, picture an American with capitalist ideals barred from setting foot in the Soviet Union due to her political leanings. Different scenarios, same outcome freedoms denied, aspirations dashed. What, then, Is our oasis of liberty where economic and political freedoms blossom together. That haven would be none other than the free market capitalism garden. Let's delve deeper to understand its essence. In this garden, the government is but a gardener, tasked solely with maintaining order and safeguarding the garden's boundaries. Its tools are not for meddling in the garden's growth, but for ensuring that the rules of nature, of buying, selling, and owning, Are followed. In this role, the government's duty is clear protect property rights, prevent theft and fraud, and then step aside. Under these conditions, the marvel of the free market emerges, dictating how people live, trade, and ultimately define their identities, uninhibited. Here lies the blueprint of a society where both economic and political freedoms are not just preserved, but are allowed to flourish in symbiosis. Part 2. The Myth of Government Spending as a Growth Engine. When economic storms brew, there's an instinctive rally cry for the government's hand to steady the ship. The common refrain public intervention is crucial to avert the chaos that unchecked markets might unleash. This sentiment, a favorite among proponents of government largesse, however, sails on a sea of flawed economic logic. Let's navigate the choppy waters of this theory's origins. In the wake of the Great Depression, the economic compass pointed towards increased government spending as a surefire route to fiscal stability. Leading this charge was the venerable John Maynard Keynes, who posited that each dollar dispensed by the government magically spawns an additional dollar in the pockets of the populace. Keynes's idea, akin to a government-spending flywheel, Suggests that public spending can counterbalance dips in private investment. Yet this notion often misfires in the practical world. Proponents argue that when personal wallets snap shut, the government should pry open the treasury to offset the deficit. In reality, though, these spending sprees are sluggish to initiate, often lagging behind the needs they aim to meet, and bring forth a parade of unforeseen side effects. Once these spending endeavors are set in motion, they become as difficult to dismantle as they were to erect. Thus they persist, feasting on taxpayer dollars long after their welcome has expired, draining vitality from the economy rather than nourishing it. This discrepancy illustrates a fundamental flaw in Keynesian economics. It postulates neat solutions to hypothetical problems, but flounders in the unpredictable theater of real-world economics. The theory assumes government spending will stimulate an uptick in consumer outlay, but human behavior, especially en masse, proves too intricate for such simplistic forecasts. The lesson from the Great Depression era is revealing. Instead of indulging in spending sprees, many chose to hoard, highlighting the gulf between economic theory and human reality. Part 3. A Tight Leash on Monetary Policy for a Stable Economy When governments dabble in the delicate art of monetary policy, their touch often skews the balance of the marketplace, generating results that veer off the path of prosperity. A historical lens brings this into sharp focus, particularly when we gaze upon the haggard face of the Great Depression. During this period of economic desolation, government actions, or more accurately, inactions, played a starring role in the drama. The Federal Reserve, tasked with the stewardship of money supply, stood by idly as the nation's financial bloodstream constricted by a staggering one-third from July 1929 to March 1933. This monumental oversight turned what might have been a fleeting economic discomfort into an era-defining catastrophe. And therein lies the million-dollar question, what should the Federal Reserve have enacted to mitigate this downfall? The answer is deceptively simple a steadfast commitment to simply maintaining the flow of money would have kept the economic waters from receding so disastrously. Instead, the emptying tides saw incomes halved and prices fall sharply, turning a troubled situation into a historic debacle. To avert a rerun of such harrowing times, it's critical to bridle the Federal Reserve's role tightly the central bank's governance over economic matters should be singularly clear-cut. A steady, fixed yearly expansion of the monetary supply is the prescription for health. This approach wrenches the reins away from a select few bureaucrats, with an overabundance of autonomy and establishes a transparent, annual enlargement target, perhaps 3-5%, to carved in the economic bedrock. Such a cap on interference halts the cyclical instability wrought by heavy-handed governmental involvement. By endorsing a known and consistent monetary growth rate, we foster a climate of predictability, encouraging the free market's inherent stability to thrive, safe from the whims of interventionist tactics. Part 4. Finding Education's Sweet Spot. Balancing public good and private benefit, education stands tall as one of those rare consensuses where most nod in agreement over the state's involvement. Yet, despite this common ground, the question lingers. To what extent should this involvement stretch? The consensus generally halts at the point where tassels are moved at high school graduations. The state's educational spotlight should shine brightest from the colourful kindergartens to the bustling corridors of 12th grade. Here, the neighbourhood effect takes centre stage the ripple where one person's education beneficently washes over the entire community. Picture a society where literacy and numeracy aren't universal. The very fabric of communal life would unravel, but venture into the realms of higher education and the waters muddy. The ripple of benefit becomes a narrow stream, often pooling around the individual rather than flowing back to the collective. The Ph.D. in particle physics? That's a monumental personal achievement with hazy communal returns. In this upper echelon of academia, government funding, underwritten by taxpayer dollars, loses its communal justification. However, it's not just the extent, but also the methodology of government funding that begs for re-evaluation, specifically for K-12 education. Modernity's script sees children funneled into local schools financed by the heavy hand of direct taxes. Imagine instead a scenario painted with broader strokes of choice, a voucher system lifting each family, grant in hand, to select an educational institution that fits their aspirations. Competition would be the new professor in town, pushing schools to innovate and outshine rivals in efficiency, cost-effectiveness, and curricular relevance. Currently, curricula are a state proclamation with an uncontested core in early education but growing disputes as pupils age. In a marketplace of education, community demand would sculpt the offerings, rewarding schools that best align with societal needs. Market success stories would become the new pedagogical paradigm, challenging others to adapt or remain on the sidelines. Part 5. How Regulatory Choices Breathe Life Into Monopolies Monopolies cast long shadows over the bustling marketplace, wielding enough might to tip the scales of price control away from the invisible hand of the free market. But what gives rise to these titans that stand at odds with economic freedom? At Monopoly's heart is competition's void, or rather, a scarcity of alternatives available for consumers' choosing. Before we move further, it's vital to understand that competition, in capitalist terms, isn't a gladiator's fight to the death. Instead, it's the healthy presence of variety that fuels voluntary exchange. With this understanding of competition in our grasp, we can discern how monopolies typically sprout from the market soil. The first is born from the technical constraints inherent within certain industries. For instance, Consider the impracticality of having competing water service providers setting their pipes in a territory. It's inefficient, to say the least. These natural monopolies might seem like candidates for government oversight. Yet, it's precisely these scenarios where public interference should be kept at bay. The reason? Private sector monopolies, even unregulated ones, tend to be more accountable than their government-run counterparts who Insulated by state authority, often stray from the competitive spirit without consequence. The second pathway to monopoly is paved with protective government policies like tariffs. Take the steel industry as an example. When a country slaps tariffs on steel imports, it effectively smothers the flames of competition, creating fertile ground for monopolistic entities to rise. Absent that competitive heat, collusion becomes the order of the day. With firms conspiring to dictate the market price. Imagine the United States imposing steel tariffs. Suddenly, the domestic steel industry doesn't need to contend with foreign competition, only needing to coordinate among its national brethren. This scenario significantly lowers the threshold for monopoly, entwining industry power with regulatory decisions, thereby stifling the free market's vibrancy. Part 6. The uneven terrain of income. A capitalist necessity. Tracing back through time, society's tapestry was meticulously woven with rigid class or caste fibers. Your birth determined your career thread, with little hope for weaving a tapestry vastly different from your forebears. The emergence of capitalist society brought with it a break from those restrictive patterns. Suddenly, every individual could choose their own design, their own career path, with the promise of potential wealth as their thread. This fabric of choice and chance is the crux of social mobility, an attribute inherently capitalist in nature. But for this dynamic interplay of opportunity and aspiration to remain robust, the hand of government must wield a light touch. When the state asserts its weight, regulating and reshuffling incomes, it often disrupts the natural balance. Consider this. Those who undertake the most challenging or unpleasant roles are justifiably rewarded with greater compensation. It's a matter of balancing the scales of labor's inherent discomforts with monetary consolation. Ponder then an alternative route, the consolidation of myriad tax rates into one uniform charge, the flat rate system. The logic here strikes at the redistribution schemes prioritized in progressive taxes, leveling income disparities and living conditions. However, this philanthropic chess move misreads the board. Equality within this framework is mere mirage, only reshaping the endgame, paycheck size without considering the opening moves, people's opportunities. The true game, capitalistic at heart, prizes the latter equal chances to strive and thrive. Redistribution, however well-intentioned, skews the board, tiptoeing around fair play, disrupting the incentive-rich ecosystem that perks the ears of innovators and hard workers alike. A flat rate system aligns with this philosophy. Every member of the society, regardless of economic stature, contributes a fixed slice of their income pie to the communal pot such a system doesn't just iron out the wrinkles of opportunity inequality it may also fatten the government's purse eliminating the complex tapestry of evasion patterns woven into progressive tax models part 7 rethinking social welfare with a negative income tax approach the sweeping declarations of social welfare programs often trumpet their intention to level the societal playing field yet Upon closer inspection, these programs frequently miss their mark, not only falling short of reducing inequality, but paradoxically, exacerbating it. Public housing serves as a poignant example. Rather than being shaped by the honed edge of market efficiency, these programs are frequently mired in bureaucratic inefficacy. The consequence? A dwindling housing supply and the relegation of the poor to marginalized and often perilous urban pockets. Now, if public housing is a chink in the armour, social security is a gaping hole. It's a redistributive quagmire wherein the wealthier contribute more cumulatively, but beyond that lies a more insidious assumption of incompetence, suggesting individuals are incapable stewards of their own future security. Freedom enthusiasts who trumpet the capitalist bugle see such paternalistic manoeuvres as affronts to personal responsibility. Why should adults, capable of managing their destinies, be infantilized by state mandates? It's high time for a welfare revolution, with ineffective tax guzzling programs giving way to alternatives like a negative income tax. Imagine dismantling the extensive welfare machine and replacing it with a simple premise a guaranteed cash payment for those below a defined income threshold, effectively buoying them above the poverty line. This approach promises a double win, a leaner government freed from the clutches of convoluted bureaucracies and taxpayers who retain more of their hard-earned money, enabling it to flow productively through the economy's veins. And what of the social fabric in this new sparse government landscape, fear not, for charitable organizations, refined by the pressures and agility of the market, step nimbly into the spaces left by the state? Unlike their governmental counterparts, these private entities deftly navigate the waters of assistance, delivering aid where it's most needed. Above all, a negative income tax restores the cornerstone of individual freedom, the right to allocate one's own surplus wealth as seen fit. This is a freedom that the progressivity of income taxes, with their noble egalitarian motives, fails to uphold. Final summary. Milton Friedman's timeless examination of the intertwining realms of politics and economics is a clarion call against the tide of egalitarianism that he sees as eroding the bedrock of liberty. His sharp critique warns of a collective enthrallment with the ideal of equality, which in turn forges shackles that encumber the spirit of freedom. Through meticulous analysis, he lays bare the fallacies of profound government intervention. The costly bureaucratic adventures in market meddling and wealth redistribution are painted as fraught endeavors that often deviate wildly from their noble intentions. Friedman's doctrine advocates for a return to restraint, where the state's embrace is loosened and the people's autonomy is resurrected. Choice and agency become the tenets of a society whirling towards optimum outcomes, the anchoring of economic resilience, the flourishing of personal freedoms, and the crafting of a safety net that doesn't fray under the weight of those it seeks to support. The path to prosperity and freedom, as per freedman, is forged by the hands of a less intrusive state and the empowered choices of its citizens.